Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 1. If you are using the Black Pew Bible that's there beside you at the end of the pew, then it's going to be on page 939. And if you are using that Bible because you don't have a Bible of your own, then please just take it. It's our gift to you. We want you to be able to have God's Word in your life. And I know you can get it on your phone or wherever else, but I do think that there is just value in holding a Bible, and we want you to have that. So as we turn there, we are uh, on our way through Romans, on our way through Romans 1. I think we're going to cover two entire verses today. How about that? So let's read them together. We're looking at verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to start reading at verse 18 just for a little bit of context of what it's talking about in 1920. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. If you ever pick up a copy of John Calvin's magisterial book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, you may not know what to expect when you first start reading it. You may have thought to yourself, well, I've heard the name Calvin. I know the idea of Calvinism. And you may go in wondering, is this going to be really, really uh, technical and boring? Uh, But when you first start reading the first few pages, you will find out why it's a book that's been in print and loved by many people for about 450 years. When you have a Christian book that stays in print that long, it's not usually because it makes great technical arguments. It's because it's worshipful to read. And as you uh, read those first few pages, you will be struck by what Calvin is bringing out as the purpose of God's creation of the world and the purpose of God's creation of mankind. And the purpose is this, it's to worship God. It's to know and worship and glorify and enjoy God. And the way he describes it is the reason that I'm bringing that up right now. He describes the world that God has made as a theater for the glory of God. And that's what we're in. As we look around, that's a great Uh, A great illustration, a great comparison, when you build a theater, what is the purpose of it? Well, it's to look at what's going to go up on the stage or on the screen. It's so that people can gather together and enjoy what it is that they will see and what we have in the created world, in the cosmos, and in this earth that we have been put in, we have a theater that God has built to display his glory I love the way that Calvin puts it in one of his commentaries on the Psalms. Calvin says this, and this is actually the quote in your bulletin today. It says, The whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power, but the church is the orchestra, as it were, the most conspicuous part of it. The whole world has been set up so that everyone and everything in it would give glory to God, but we, the saved people of God, the church, We are the people who know it. We are the ones who are the orchestra pit, who are here that we gather together in order to actually go through the explicit act of worshiping this God. 
Now, the reason I tell you all that is because that's very similar to what is said right here, where it says in Romans 1.19, what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. He has revealed these things. He has made them plain since the creation of the world in what has been made. What we are setting our minds on, what the Scripture has called us to set our minds on today, is the reality that nature declares God's glory. What nature does, what God has made, is it shows everyone that God is glorious, but it saves no one. Nature takes away every excuse from everyone for unbelief, ungodliness, and unrighteousness. It takes away all excuses, but it doesn't take away any sin. So we're going to see today that the heavens and the cosmos and everything that God has made are declaring God's glory and that we need the gospel to be saved. We can't be saved just by going out and looking at the sky. Let's look at verse 19, first of all. These truths about God that are on plain display. If you're following along on the back of the bulletin, that's what it says first. I encourage you to, to look there and just kind of, maybe it'll make things make a little better sense if you see those, those points there. Here's what it says in verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now what that tells us right there is that there are things that can be known about God plainly even apart from ever having picked up a Bible, even apart from ever having anyone come and share the gospel, there are things that are plain to who? Well, it says to them. I just want you to think about this. We need to think about the actual grammar and the words of the Bible. Who is the them that it's talking about in verse 19? Well, it goes back to verse 18 where it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. You know what it's not saying? It's not saying, well, truths about God are plain to the best people in the world who just have the purest hearts to be able to look and to see that God God has, has his handprints on this world. No, it's saying this is plain to everyone. It's plain to everyone. By the way, that kind of best person doesn't exist. It's saying that this is something that is plain to everyone, but the course of everyone in their natural state is to reject it. The course of natural sinful human hearts in the state where we were born, inheriting the sin of Adam both in its guilt and in its tendency, its love for sin, that state takes the truth that is displayed around us, looks at it, in some way is affected to know that I ought to worship the God that made this, but doesn't do it. Instead turns and worships the creation rather than the creator. I'm getting ahead of myself with what's coming up in the verses that follow this one. But that's what it says, is that the, who, who it's talking about when it says it's plain to them, who's the them? Well, it is all mankind, all mankind who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. So this is what we call general revelation. That's the theological term for it. If you ever come across that, that's what that's talking about. When we, when we classify the way that God has revealed himself to human beings, we put it in two buckets. 
One of those is general revelation, and that's what's right here, where God has revealed himself broadly, generally to everybody. He's done that, as we're seeing today, through nature. And he's also done that, as we're going to see in chapter 2, through the conscience that he's imprinted on every human heart. And there is also, thank God, what we call special revelation, where God actually came and told us in human language what is true about himself. He did this through his prophets in the Old Testament. He did this through Christ himself, God in the flesh, coming and preaching the truth to us as our great prophet. He did this in continuing to lead the apostles and those closely associated with the apostles to write down the teachings of Christ, which are called the New Testament. He has specially revealed himself. And we need that special revelation in order to be saved. But everybody receives general revelation. It's not enough to save, but it is enough to make us all guilty. That's what general revelation is. There are some who say... God doesn't believe in atheists. And you know what? That's exactly what the Bible says right here. Now, what that doesn't mean, of course, there's obviously people who deny the existence of God. I think they're frustrated by the fact that they have to call themselves atheists because the word theist is built right into that word. The only way that they have to deny God is to admit up front that it is normal for people to acknowledge the existence of God and then to say, but I don't. But what this says is that they know. Even those who in their ungodliness and unrighteousness suppress the truth all the way to the point of doing exactly what it says in the Psalms. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Even those who do that, it says, it is plain to them. What can be known about God is plain to them. So you can say in truth, God does not believe in atheists. There is no such thing as an atheist, even though there also kind of is, because they're out there, right? So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And what is it that can be known about God? Because it says in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them. Well, what is it that can be known? And that takes us right into verse 20. Here's what it says can be known about God. His invisible attributes can be known. Now, that doesn't mean that every single thing about God can be known just by looking at nature. Obviously, we need our Bibles. We need to be deep in our Bibles to know the deep truths of God that he's told to us. But it says right here that there are invisible attributes. We have this God who cannot be seen. And yet, through what he's made that can be seen, there are things about this God, attributes of this God, that can be known. We can know something about the invisible God by simply looking at the visible creation. And this is something that you have done, whether you know it or not. Because it says right here that this is for all mankind. This is everybody everywhere. These things have been made plain right in front of us through what's been made. And what specifically are those invisible attributes that can be known? Well, it says this. Here are the invisible attributes. Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So, it says, here are things that everybody knows. Even if in their sin and unrighteousness they suppress that knowledge, they push it back, they push it back so hard that they would say, I never knew that. This says right here, 
Everybody knows this because of the world that we have been put in, because of the creation that proclaims these things. And I think to most of us this is obvious. It says we know his eternal power. Now, when it says eternal power, one of the things that's built into that is eternity. So I've listed three things in particular that says that we can know about God through creation. That's God's eternity, God's power, and God's divinity. What does it mean that God is eternal? Well, it means that God has no beginning. God has no ending. When you look around at the world, when you see the world that's been made, one of the things that it declares is that somebody made it. The fact that there is something rather than nothing just cries out for there to be a great God who is eternal, who is outside of time, who began it. The fact that we are here in this moment tells all of our hearts that there must have been a beginning moment somewhere. That God must be outside of eternity in order to have done this. To be the unmoved mover who kicked it off. We, we look around at the world and what this tells us is that we know that there has to be something that was here before this material universe. Something that called it into being. There has to be someone who is in charge of all this. Someone who is above it. Someone who is outside it. Someone who has created it. Someone who is directing it. And the Bible tells us right here that everyone has a sense of that truth from the things that have been made because of the created world that he has put us in. It's there. Another thing that it tells us that everyone knows, even if they suppress the truth, is that God is eternally powerful. God's power is displayed in what he has made. God is the one who is God. When we say God, I hope that it calls to mind greatness. Just the idea of God, his greatness, his power. There is nothing that God cannot do. Now, when I say that, some people would want to jump out of the woodworks and play logic games with human language and say things like, but God can't make a rock so big he can't lift it. Guys, God also invented logic, and he made that an illogical thing. All right? There is nothing that God cannot do. God has all authority. God has all power. He is permitted to do anything because he actually is the authority over everything. He has the ability to do anything that he wants to. And you know what he has done? He has stretched out the heavens like a tent. He has called every one of the heavenly hosts into its place and named them all, and not one of them is missing. It says in Psalm 2, 2 through 4, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the tendency of the sinful, fallen world that we who believe were once part of before we believe. This is the tendency to say, Yes, I see the bonds and the power and the cords of God, and I, I hate them. I want to resist them. I want to break those bonds apart. I want to exercise my power. Even the kings of the earth, the most powerful people in the world, would say, let us break their bonds apart. And you know what God says about that? 
It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. How about that? He's just looking up, he's looking down and he's laughing at all of these efforts of all of these people and kings and presidents and militaries to overthrow the power of God. It can't be done. God is powerful over everything that is material in the universe. The farthest galaxy that has ever been spotted by human telescopes and the ones that are beyond that that we've never seen before. God is all-powerful over every bit of that. And he is all-powerful over the tropical storm that blew through here a couple of days ago. And he's all-powerful over the tree that fell back there and smashed the fence a couple weeks ago. And he's all-powerful over everything that is material. And he's all-powerful over everything that is spiritual. He is the one who is king over the host of heaven. He's the king of the angels. And some would say, but he's not the king of the demons. But in the Bible, we see that even they have to come and ask permission before God. Even Satan at the beginning of Job has to come and ask permission from God to afflict Job. God is the one who is all-powerful over everything that's material and over everything that is spiritual, which covers everything that has been created. God is powerful over it. God is powerful over things that are in the past. God is powerful over the things of the present and what you're doing right now and the fact that your heart is still beating and your lungs are still working right here. God is powerful over the future, every bit of it. And you don't know what your future holds, and God does, and he's powerful over it, and he has it. He has it in his hands. Here's what it says in Isaiah 40. This is a little bit earlier in the chapter than what we prayed from today. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Guys, it doesn't take very long before I get a bucket of water that's big enough I can't lift it. And you know what God does? He measures the waters of all the oceans and the earth in the hollow of his hand, it says. It doesn't take very long before I get a rock that's big enough that I'm going to have to get some kind of heavy equipment before I can lift it. And you know what? It really doesn't take very long beyond that before you get a rock that's big enough that no heavy equipment can lift it. And you know what God does? It says he takes all the dirt in the world, all the dust of the earth, and measures it and weighs it, including all the mountains, in a scale, in the hills, in a balance. Now, that's just things on earth, and there's a whole universe out there. God is powerful over all of it. He goes on in that same chapter, and he says, Behold, the nations, not just the, 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 the stuff that's out there, but the people and the nations. He says, The nations... That includes our nation. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Wow. Guys, this is a powerful God. And you know what else he's powerful over? He's powerful over our eternal souls. Do you know who decides whether you go to heaven for all eternity or hell for all eternity? God. You can have all kinds of things that you would bring to God with your case about why you should go to heaven, but we're not the ones who do that. God is the one who does that. 
God is the one who has power, Jesus said, after he has killed the body, to cast both body and soul into hell. He is the one that we should fear and not man. And when we consider that, we should get on our knees and thank and praise God that God in all of his power has willed not to leave us in our sins, but to send Jesus as the Savior to die for us while we were still sinners so that we could have the free gift of his righteousness by faith, the free gift of eternal life by believing upon Jesus to be saved. But God is the one who's powerful over that. Now, that good news about Jesus, you can't see that good news about Jesus by looking at the mountains. But you can understand the power of God by looking at the mountains. God has all power. All power, it's been clearly perceived, and it says, not just his eternal power, but also his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the beginning of the, the world. His divine nature, you know what that means? It's God's godness, God's divinity. There is something, as you look at nature, that you can understand, and every person does on some level understand, that God is there and that God is God. What does that mean? Well, it means that God is other than man. It means that God is higher than man. It means that God is distinct from his creation, that there is a separation between what is God and what is not God. What God is, who God is, and what God has created, and they are distinct. Here's what it says in another place in Isaiah 40. We prayed from this, but I'm going to read it. It says, He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and he spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth emptiness. It says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's saying, when you lift up your eyes and you see the creation, there is an understanding that is being preached by the creation itself, that God is God, that he has a divine nature, and that he's not like us. God is holy. God is righteous. But because man is not, man suppresses that truth. Man takes the truths that are plainly seen in the things that have been made, even those who have never heard a verse of the Bible or the name of Jesus, and man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Now, when we say that, when we say man, we're not just talking about those people out there. We're saying this is the state you and I were born into, is a state of suppressing the truth, not a state of looking out at creation and then dropping to our knees and worshiping the God that the creation calls us to worship, but a state of looking out and understanding it on some level, but saying, but because I must hold on to my unrighteousness somehow, I will turn a different direction. Because I would rather not come to terms with the fact that I need to repent of the desires of my heart that I like, I would rather suppress that truth and invent my own reality and live in that world so that I can go about in the darkness instead of in the light that might expose my soul. That is the nature of man apart from the new birth, apart from being born again to believe in Jesus as Savior.
Now, where do you see those truths? We've been told that the invisible attributes of God, especially his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Where do you see them? Well, the Bible tells us two places right here in verse 20, where you can look and you can perceive these things about God, and everyone can look and everyone has looked and everyone has, on some level at least, perceived these truths through these two things, and that is through the creation of the world and through the things that have been made. All right. Now, I always tell you, look at your footnote. If you're using the ESV, which is the Pew Bible version that we have, where it says, ever since the creation of the world, there's a footnote that says, or clearly perceived from the creation of the world. There is a, a, uh, uh, there's sort of a both and built into the wording here. One is that they've been clearly perceived since the time that God made the creation. But the other thing that's built in here is that they have been perceived, these things about God have been perceived by the fact that the creation has been created, by the fact that the cosmos exists. And that's the sense of the word world that's being used there. It's not just this particular planet that we're living in. It's all creation. It is the entire cosmos. When we think of the existence of the cosmos, you know what that does It calls to mind that question, why is it here? And I'm going to submit to you that there is no logical answer for why the cosmos is here, except that God created it. There is no logical answer except that God created it. Now, there's lots of theories about that, these cosmologies that would masquerade their philosophy as science. I'll tell you about each of these. These But by the way, every time a scientist starts talking about philosophy... People say, well, science says. Do you know, let me just explain what science is and what philosophy is, okay? Science is where you use the scientific method to observe and draw conclusions from what is observed, all right? Now, that is a good thing. Christians should be, we should absolutely love science, all right? But what you do when you go from the actual observable things to then how this must have an eternity past come to to be, you've jumped out of observable science and you've jumped into philosophy. Right? So let, let me tell you about three of the theories that, uh, that are out there that where, where you've got a little bit of science that just jumps straight into some wild philosophy. All right? One of those is what's, what, what you, you know about. There's a famous TV show named after it, the Big Bang Theory. Right? The Big Bang Theory. It, it, now, what that does is it takes the actual scientific fact that is observable of what's called redshift in the universe that the objects in the universe almost entirely are moving apart from each other, like raisins in a cake that's being baked. That is a scientifically observable fact. That's true. But then it makes the conclusion, the philosophical conclusion, therefore everything must have come from a central point that got overloaded by all, all of this mass and energy and just exploded out. Now, Let me tell you what the philosophical problem is there. Well, where did that thing come from? Right? Where where did that thing come? That little tiny point where all of the energy and matter in the universe was supposedly compressed at one point before it exploded out. There is no explanation for that. I mean, maybe there, there are some who think, well, maybe the entire universe has for eternity past been contracting and then banging again and then coming back together and banging again. 
But it just, you know what it does? It just kicks the can down the road. It does not answer the question of why is there something rather than nothing. And what we all know, according to the Bible right here, and you know it, I know you know it, is that the only reason why there can be something rather than nothing is because someone started it. There must be an unmoved mover. And we all know that from looking at creation. But, but the, that, that theory is philosophy masquerading as science. Let me tell you another one that's philosophy masquerading as science. It's called the multiverse theory. All right? Sometimes people call this the infinite universe theory. Now, the, the, the scientific point that this kicks off from is that sometimes there are subatomic particles that actually do behave in such a way that it seems that they are going in two directions at the same time, which is a bizarre thing. And I'll, I'll admit, that's a, wow, that's pretty crazy. And then when I see that, I want to say, wow, God, it's amazing how you set up the world to operate like that. But there are some who would look, look at that little scientific fact and then jump from that to saying, therefore, there must be infinite universes. Because all of these subatomic particles, they can go this way and that way at the same time. And so then you've got one universe in which the, the particle went that way and another universe in which the particle went that way. And now there's a little slight difference between those two universes so that in theory, there could be so many universes out there that there's an entire parallel universe in which everything is exactly the same except that those of you who have lost your hair did not lose it in that universe. Or that those of you who clipped your toenails this morning forgot to in that universe. And that there are so many universes and so many possibilities, and what this does is it takes those who would reject God in their ungodliness and unrighteousness, and it would say, well, here is how things can be so remarkable in this world that we're living in. It's because there are infinite universes and we just happen to be in the one where it ended up this way. You see what that is? That's not science. That is a philosophy. Guarding hearts against the obvious truth that God is creator that we're accountable to. A third thing, and I just came across this this week, the, uh, uh, the magazine The New Yorker tweeted out this article that they had, had made, uh, had written up uh, in 2016, um, where, where they say this, a number of philosophers, futurists, science fiction writers, and technologists have come to believe that the simulation argument is not just plausible, but inescapable. The simulation argument. You know what the science there is. Let me tell you what the science is, and then I'll tell you what the philosophy is and what this argument is. The science is computers exist. <laughs> okay? Computers exist, and computers can run simulations. The philosophy then is, well, the universe is so vast that there must be societies out there that have been around way longer than us and must be way better at computing than us and possibly could have even done such amazing things as travel to other planets that were useless and make them useful by covering those entire planets in computing systems that would run the most intricate simulations that anyone has ever seen. And then the idea out of that is we must be living in a computer simulation. Now you say that's crazy. Have you ever heard of Elon Musk? Supposedly a very, I mean, I, well, I won't say supposedly, legitimately a very smart guy. But here's what he said about that. He said, there is a billion to one chance we're living in base reality. You hear that? You know what's happening there? 
I, I don't want to get ahead of myself too much in the chapter, but look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. He's saying there is a billion to one chance that we are not living in a computer simulation. That's his explanation for how the world can be as it is. But do you know what's plain? Do you know what's plain? God is the eternal, all-powerful being who has created us. So you can, you can look and you can see because there is something rather than nothing, it is plain that God has made us. God is the only logical answer to this. There must be an unmoved mover. This is why I have never met a child in my life that this sentence doesn't make sense to. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's pretty simple, isn't it? And that's what we all know. We all know that. And it's plain in the scripture and it's plain in creation. We know as Christians, Psalm 102, of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. But it's not just Christians who know that. It's on display for everyone to see. Everyone. You can also look and you can see the creation design of God and the things that have been made and something about God. It says not just ever since the creation of the world, but also in the things that have been made. You can see that in big things, as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When we look up at the sky, when we look up at the night sky and we see the stars, it is just shouting, glory to God. Man suppresses it in unrighteousness, but that's what it's shouting. When you look up at the sky and you see a beautiful sunset, I don't know if any of you have had the chance to be out on the bayside of Sandy Hook this summer to see a sunset out there. It's just magnificent. And do you know what's happening right now? There is a sunrise over Hawaii right now. And there is a sunset over Karachi, Pakistan right now. And every time you see these beautiful sunrises and sunsets, you just want to say, glory to God. And it's happening all over the world all the time. And it's happening on Saturn. And it's happening on all the rest of the planets. And it's happening on all these planets that are out around stars in the distant spaces of the universe in places where human beings will never be there to see it. And yet all of these sunsets and sunrises are happening all over the universe that every single one of them is declaring the glory of God right now. And yet man in his unrighteousness and in his foolishness would say, there is no God. We know it. We know it. You can see it in big things. You can see it in small things. Those small things and the things that have been made. Let me give you an example. Salmon. Maybe you've eaten some salmon this week. Do you know how amazing salmon are? I, I could not believe it the first time that I actually learned about salmon and what they do. They, they hatch in these, these streams in fresh water. Miles, and I mean, sometimes maybe even 100 miles from the ocean, they just they hatch there and then they swim out from fresh water into the ocean, into salt water, and they're fine. And then they swim hundreds of miles, thousands of miles, they spend all this time in the ocean, and then they swim back. And you know where they swim back to? The same spot. They don't just go find any river, they go to the same river, and then they go up the same branch. And then they go up the same creek and the same branch of that creek and they find the exact spot 
where they themselves were hatched and they lay their eggs there. And then their children do the same with this. It's just incredible. And, and you look at that and you say, wow, what a miracle of evolution. What? This is one of the things that, that you see even betrayed by those who are, are just preaching um, evolution as, as a way to get God out of the creation of living things is that they still, you, if you listen to this, you will still hear in their descriptions things like the word miracle, things like the word design. This has been designed. It is even in the people who are actively denying those things about miraculous creation and the design by an intelligent designer, they can't help but to see it. It's just there. You see irreducible complexity in things like your eyeball. Your eyeball could not have evolved in these slow steps. It's just not possible. It wouldn't have been useful, wouldn't have made any sense without the complete thing being together. Your spleen is the same way. People thought it was useless until the 1950s, and then they found out it wasn't. The, the, the flagellum on a bacteria. When you zoom all the way down into bacterial life, you can see things like these little spinning tails that propel the bacteria along, and it is irreducibly complex where it could not have evolved one little part at a time. Either the whole thing's there or it's useless. And as we see these things, what this does in the things that we observe, now you might not even be thinking about the creation versus evolution debate. You might just be looking at your cat. And you look at it and you say, this is amazing. This is amazing. Maybe your dog. But then you have to walk it and get sitters and all that kind of stuff. And, and you say, well, maybe, maybe I'll get a cat. But guys, you see this in creation. You see it in creation. And it's plain. Now, if, if, you, if you want to know more about this, uh, uh, there, there are, I think a lot of Christians go through a phase in life where you just really, really, really want to know all about creation and evolution. Um, and if that's the case, then please dig into it and get it worked out, all right? Uh, and a great place to start and, and to look at that is AnswersInGenesis.com. All right, so just go there, go to Answers in Genesis. Don't come to me with your questions about, uh, about you know, chemistry and all that kind of stuff. I'm, just go to Answers in Genesis, okay? But, um, but guys, it's plain. Now, you get, to somebody, uh, you get to somebody like Richard Dawkins. Have you heard of Richard Dawkins? He's a very famous atheist. You know what Richard Dawkins said in, in an interview? When somebody really pressed him on, but how did life get here in the first place? How did it start? Well, he said, well, it must have just been the first molecule that managed to replicate itself. And they said, but how did that happen? How did that happen? And they pressed him hard, and he said, well, realistically, it could have been something like a more evolved society visited our planet and brought it. You know what all of that is doing? It's kicking the can down the road. Either God created, or there is no sense. By the way, if, if your brain is just evolved through a series of random mutations, I don't know why you trust it. I don't know why you trust the theories that would come out of it or anybody else's brain. I could go on, but I won't. Here's the plain truth. 
God has been clean, clearly perceived in the things that have been made since the creation of the world. God has been clearly perceived. And what is the effect? What's the effect of what nature proclaims on human hearts? Well, the effect is to take away excuses. The effect is to take away excuses. It says in verse 20, the end of the verse, they are without excuse. I have heard this passage read and preached in a couple of different settings before in a place, in a way where some would say, well, this says that everyone in the whole world has a knowledge of God through nature. Therefore, we can rest easy that people can go to heaven on the basis of the light of nature that they receive. That is the opposite of what this verse says. This does not say that anyone is going to go to heaven through this. This says that everyone is justly condemned and that the light of nature is part of what God uses to justly condemn sinners. The Bible does not say that anyone comes to faith in Jesus or has eternal life apart from the gospel. But the Bible does say that everyone is fully responsible for their sin. And part of that responsibility comes through what God has built into creation for everyone to see. Now, it's common for people to use the excuse when, they've, when they're caught doing something they shouldn't do, to use the excuse, I didn't know. Officer, I didn't see the speed limit sign. Right? I didn't know about that law in the country I was visiting. All of these things. There's an excuse of I didn't know. It even comes into church, church life, when we make announcements right? We announce, oh man, I don't want to pick on you too much. I'll pick on you just a little bit, okay? We, we, we make announcements at the beginning of the service. We, we put announcements up there. We put announcements in the bulletin. We've got announcements in the email newsletter. And a lot of people still don't know. <laughs> Every church I've been part of in ministry over the last 17 years, there's always been this, this thing that comes up constantly. We need to communicate better because people don't know. I'm convinced that there are some who it just doesn't matter where you put announcements, their brain will turn off and, and they'll just never hear. I say that partly because I want you to listen to the announcements and read the newsletters and that kind of stuff, but more than that because what this is saying here is that all mankind is naturally the kind of person who will not pay attention to the announcement that God is making through nature, that he's God, that he's worthy, that he ought to be worshipped and thanked. That's the plain, clear announcement that's being blasted out as the sun shines in through these windows, as you and I use our lungs, and as God keeps us alive through that. Every detail, it is announced everywhere all the time. It's announced to the farmer who has a dairy farm in the middle of the, of the mountains in, in Switzerland with the beautiful views of, of the Swiss Alps right there in front of him every day. It's clearly announced, and it's announced to the prisoner in solitary confinement who can just barely see the light of the sun creep across his cell that day and sees a little critter scatter across the floor. It is still announced. It's announced and it's plain to everybody that God is God. He is creator. He is holy and we are accountable to him. The right response to that, it's going to say in next week's verse, verse 21, is to honor him and give thanks to him. But that is not the effect of nature. 
The effect of nature is just to make people guilty for not doing that. God has designed in nature for his elect to honor him as God and give thanks to him as God. And he has designed and built into nature for the reprobate to be without excuse for failing to give thanks and failing to honor him as God. There is no salvation by looking at nature. It just makes everyone without excuse. It makes no one saved. You know what nature does? It makes God's glory plain to everyone, but it saves no one. Nature removes all excuses, but it changes no hearts. A couple of things that we need to do with that as we know that. One is that you need to go to church, all right? In the summer months, occasionally, people will tell me, if you've told me this before, I don't remember who's told me this, so I'm not picking on you personally, but we've all heard it before. I'm going to worship out in nature this Sunday. Guys, I hope that as Christians, that when you're out in nature, that you will thank God and you will give glory to God. You will do what nature is designed to do to move your heart to praise. But you know what you need is not just see nature. You need the word of God. When you go out in nature, it might make your heart sing, but it's not going to make your heart changed. You need God's word. Another thing to do is if you are trying to convince someone to come to faith in Christ, if you are sharing the gospel, if you want them to be saved, don't dwell in that conversation on nature. Don't dwell in that conversation on creation versus evolution. Don't, don't dwell in that conversation on where did the universe come from. Those things are real. I talked about them here because they're real and they're meaningful. That's why I directed you to answers in Genesis and other things. But I, you need to know this. What the Bible does not say, it does not say if you could just get people to clearly see that God made the world, then they would worship. No, it says they already clearly see and they don't worship. How are people going to get saved? It's not going to be through becoming convinced that the theory of evolution is a bad theory. There are many lost people who are convinced that the theory of evolution is a bad theory. How are you going to get saved? You're going to get saved by the gospel. So don't get sidetracked by all these things. All it's going to do is make the people that you're talking to more guilty before God. But you know what's going to save people is to tell them the gospel and for the Holy Spirit then to apply the gospel effectually to call that person to cause them to be born again. That's what he said. That's the preface to all this back in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He does not say that the arguments about creation and evolution are effective and powerful to save. It is not, but the gospel is. We need to know that God is God, that man is sinful, that Christ is the solution. He has died for sinners, and if you will believe in him, you will have eternal life. That's the gospel, and it saves. Now, last thing to think about. What about the man on the island? This is a question that comes up all the time. What about that, that guy out there? on an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean where the, the, the government of the nation that has taken control of that island has made a decree that no one is allowed to have any contact with this tribe. 
and that they are to be left alone to themselves to preserve their cultural heritage. Well, what about those people? Can they be saved by looking at nature? Is this saying that they can look at the things that have been, perce- have been created, and as they look at those things that have been created, as they perceive God's eternal power and his divine nature, that, that uh, on the basis of the light that they receive, that they can then go to heaven? It's not what it says. It says they are without excuse. Now, I don't tell you that so that we can have some sort of a superiority complex here. I tell you that because you and I would have been completely lost unless somebody told us the gospel. And that's the case for the man on the island too. You know what this ought to do, according to the scriptures, this ought to motivate us to go and to tell the gospel. Look at Romans 10. Just flip a few pages to the right. Here's what it says about this in Romans 10.9. It says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's who will be saved, is those who call upon the name of Jesus for their salvation. But then he goes on and he says, How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Guys, there are people all over the world who are making some kind of religious efforts, even as they suppress the truth and ungodliness, making some kind of religious efforts. What we are not to do is to say, they must be okay because they are trying, they are grasping at whatever light they have. They're trying to do good. They're trying. No, what it just told us back in verse 18 is that that is ungodliness. It's not just unrighteousness, it's ungodliness not to know and to worship God as God. But the only way that people can come to know God, have their sins forgiven, receive eternal life, the only way, it says, is if someone is sent and preaches the good news and they hear and they believe. That's what those verses say. Without that, they cannot be saved. This is the way that God saves people. He saves no one through nature but he will save people from every tribe and tongue and nation through the preaching of the gospel. So as we think about the revelation of God in nature, we ought to know that it's insufficient. We ought to know that we've got to send people. We need to pray. Jesus told us this. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he may send workers into his harvest. I think that's on the front of your bulletin today. Guys, we need to pray for workers to go. We need to pray for those that we are funding. We also need to ask ourselves, how can we give money toward missions, toward the missions fund that we have, not a penny of which goes toward funding this church and its operations. It all goes to get the gospel to people who would not have heard if we didn't send. And you also need to ask yourself, should I go? Are there people across the world who are lost and dying and doomed to hell if they don't hear the gospel who I could go and tell? This is why we don't just say to ourselves, well, there's plenty of mission work to be done in New Jersey. That's true. But guys, there are places in the world. We have these on our bulletin regularly. Unreached people groups. Entire tribes and tongues and nations where nobody can get the gospel. Nobody knows about the gospel. They are unreached, and people need to go. 
People need to devote their lives to go. You might need to just go on a short-term mission trip and see if maybe God would call you to devote your life to go and to be one of those who would share the gospel with those who would never hear and never be saved. But as it says in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So what do we need to do as we consider God's revelation of himself through nature? We need to worship and praise God. But we also need to be driven to see this is not sufficient for people to be saved. We need to get the gospel out there. And you need to believe and you need to tell. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that that you have revealed yourself in nature. I thank you that you have, have given this general revelation that is so beautiful as we look at what you have made. God, I pray that you would let us be that orchestra pit in the theater of God that is beautifully praising your name in this world as those who know and have come to understand through the new birth, have come to understand the purpose of this world and the purpose of our lives to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy you, God. Lord, cause just tune our hearts to praise. And God, we also know that no one will be saved by looking at nature. It removes every excuse. Help us to go. Lord, would you bless the missionaries that we fund from this church? Would you bless their efforts and save people through their gospel preaching? God, would you grant us a greater generosity to fund those efforts as people just simply won't be saved unless they hear? And God, would you grant us a willingness to go, if you call us to go, even to leave everything behind, to go and to reach those who would never hear if we didn't go? Father, I pray for those who might be here who don't believe today. Maybe they, they, they are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness even right now. God, I pray that you would not let them leave without believing, that you would change their hearts through thinking of Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. And I pray that if they do leave without believing, that every time they look up at the sky, that you'd remind them that you are God and drive them back to the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.